They called us monsters, so monsters we became. We are monsters out of the closet. I'm Nicole. And I'm Shreya. The Gothic tradition has left an indelible mark on the horror genre. From the corkscrewing tension between family members to the unspeakable secrets slowly brought to light, there's a delicious sense of anticipation and dread in every work. This month's featured story reveals a unique haunting and the desperate gruesome lengths one family will go to create a solution. Sparrow was written by M. Regan and features Della Robertson Glenn as the narrator, Eric Little as the master, Abigail Burkett as the maid, and Anna Pods as the lady, with Sheila Began voicing the poem, Who Killed Cock Robin? 1. Who killed Cock Robin? I, said the sparrow, with my bow and arrow, I killed Cock Robin. 2. I am alive. I live in the corners, dusty and dark. I hide behind furnishings, frightened by sunlight. I chase after his shadow, and I pounce on his heels. His shadow is my favourite place to be. I love it here. I feel safe in the shape of him, warm and surrounded, as if we were embracing. My fingers dig playfully into his ankles, into the tendons and skin, and brittle bones that have been cloistered inside his boots. He cannot see me. He cannot feel me. But a shiver races up his spine, and he knows that I am there. Three. Mornings are too bright for silhouettes. In the office, bow windows shine like crystal, their lattices bleached to nihility. I crouch beside his writing desk, watching as he works. Sometimes I poke his ink pots. Sometimes I rustle his letters. Sometimes I make him smile. Afternoon performs strange alchemy on the light, turning its watery rays thick and golden. The wash of it gilds the parlour, making baroque furnishings gleam. He takes his tea while I take my nap, lulled by the silvery song of spoons in wedwood cups, and when I wake, I find that he has set aside a biscuit or a tiny cake for me, newspaper foregone, in favour of watching cream melt and fruit glazing ooze. I cannot eat what he eats. I cannot eat at all. But it is nice to play pretend. Evening comes like a hundred thousand ravens, their feathers smothering the sun. Plumage rustles. Beady eyes gaze unnoticed from within the downy gloom. He groans and whimpers, and sighs atop his feather bed, against another's body, as the moon casts delicate reflections of cage bars across the floor. Who saw him die? I, said the fly, with my little eye, I saw him die. 
Is she here? He asks, breathlessly wanton. His bruised lips parted, and bright gaze darting, straining, desperate. He tries to see beyond the veil that hides me from his sight. I peek from behind the four-poster's curtain. That I am spotted immediately is a surprise to no one. She is master. The housemaid chuckles, affection stitching together the tattered silk of her voice. Monochrome petticoats and pools of ruche froth round her hips. Long hair spills over bare flesh. Violet eyes cut sideways, sharp enough to slice through the atramentous night, inhuman enough to see me for what I am. For who I am. Tell her to leave us. The maid's lashes flutter, as light as a nested bird's wing. You heard him, little one. A draught urges me into the hall. The corridor stretches long, so I do the same. Tendrils of my consciousness expand freely, drifting outward, and I meld peacefully into the blackness. For I say nothing. I weigh nothing. I am nothing. No, little one. You are everything. The maid's silhouette is as much a comfort to me as her master's. I wrap around and around her legs, weaving myself through the eyelets of her boots. She pears and peels potatoes while I pout. Just a bit longer, dear heart. Just hold out a bit longer. Five. He sees me. Metaphorically, as one would a tiny child. He sees me as innocent, as naive and fragile. He does not see me. He has never seen me, and so is far from correct in his assumptions. But neither is he wrong. His body is newly twenty. My essence is now two and one half, yet it seems to me that we are older than we appear. Our minds, as wicked and ancient as the violet-eyed creature who dubbed herself his maid. Six. Every Christmas, I am given a doll. They are left for me on the sill of the nursery's window, their miniature legs hooked over the crib bars. Dust motes spin as mobiles would above them. When the sun shines, its rays press warmth into china spines. I learned to tell time off the dials of dangling feet. Hours pass, then days, then months, then years. I change. They don't. They sit, angelified by halos of backlight, as I marvel at their beauty. A window frame of whitewashed wood borders the brunette. The crushed velvet of her bonnet, bluer than the sky in summer, 
Beside her sits a redhead with a braid, her doe eyes wide and filamented and lifeless. I cannot play with my dolls. I cannot move them, cannot touch them, but I can love them. I can paw at them and sniff them and stare. I can want. I do want. I want a blonde this year. A blonde with curls. I want her to be pale, to wear pinks and pearls. I want this very badly. I want that to be known. The maid laughs when I loop myself around her skirts, begging, nearly getting lost in labyrinthine lace patterns. Perhaps, if you're good. She coos. Seven. Before there were dolls to teach me time. Before there were sweets left for my pleasure. Before he knew I was there at all. I saw the master cry. Who will be chief mourner? I, said the dove, I mourn for my love. I'll be chief mourner. He blamed chills on the winter, jostled post on crosswinds. His inkpot tipped due to his own carelessness, though he swore it had been placed nowhere near his elbow. He swore in other ways, too. Walking past me, walking through me, the master cursed and wandered, stumbling about until he reached the manor's barren garden. He was alone there, sans the birds. There are always, always birds. The marble bent that the master favours was as cold as a grave in February, as white as the snow and the sound of silence. The flowers that had been planted last spring lay withered and dead at his feet. Branches shivered beside him, shriveled, clawing from the earth like corpse arms. They strained for him. I did, too. Neither of us could reach. Don't cry. I tried, but could not say. I had no voice. No mouth, no face. He had no shadow in the colourless day. No idea that I was beside him, sobbing, Please don't be sad. You don't need to be sad. I am alive. Eight. Sometimes my biscuit is taken. Sometimes my cake eaten. Sometimes the lady comes to call, and decorum compels the master to bow, gracious, and offer what would have been my share. I do not mind. The lady fascinates me. She is the closest one can get to sunshine without being burned. Golden tresses and rosy cheeks, frills and ruffles and opalescent gossamer. Pinky daintily extended, she sips at Earl Grey and flashes a smile, her teeth the exact same shade of porcelain as her cup. Her eyes shimmer, and I can tell she loves him. I like that, too. I touch the instep of her shoe, 
stroking reverentially to her heel. She does not understand that chilly, static tickle, only knows that her foot suddenly, gracelessly jerks. The lady apologises. He tells her not to worry, pours her a spot more tea, asks her once again if she is sure, very sure, that she wishes to be his. Who would be the parson? I, said the rook, with my little book, I'll be the parson. Yes, the lady vows, in every way. He loves her too. Obviously, he loves her too. The wedding is in one week. Nine. I don't like it in here. It's dark. Hot. Wet. Too wet. What are these? I can't move. I don't recognise. I can't move. I can't breathe. I don't like it. He said I would like it. I'm trapped. I can't breathe. 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 Who caught his blood? I, said the fish. With my little dish, I caught his blood. A snap. A squelch. I burst into the world with a sickening crack. Like a hatchling escaping its egg. Mist hisses. Deafening. The walls are copper damp where sprayed. I am riled, terrified. In a panic, I flee my prison and scramble over to their shadows, quivering as I cling to the maid's leg. She comforts me with a hush. Then, turning to her master, she says, I told you she'd reject it. Ten. He had to be told. About the vertebrae. About the viscera. About the chunks. About the slurry of half-formed organs that his maid had laboured over, silent, on that starry night two and one-half years ago. It had been an agonising ordeal, even for one like herself. The pain overwhelmed. The horror could drive one mad. Cursing her body for its failures, the maid cried and cried, cradling what fleshy parts could be fished from the mire. She gathered a tendon, an eye, pushed through another contraction, and then, finally... There you were, little one. That's what he was told. And that's what she tells me. I have to be told, too. No one really remembers being born. I don't want to remember being born. I coil closer to the maid, shuddering to imagine myself in so many raw lumps, splattered across ruined sheets. You were like a doll, the maid continues, her voice as warm as my entrails had been, 
disassembled, broken, beyond repair, but in being what I am, I had ways to preserve your pieces. A tender finger traces the edge of a jar, the ridge of its lid, the warped and pickled contours of what floats behind thick glass. The rate of decay is measured, the blanket nest readjusted. The stench of bitter herbs puffs up from the crib, stirring the nursery's stagnant air. Dust wheels, winks, and falls like stars in the Icarus twilight. She checks the time on my dolls. Soon their shadows will disappear. Soon, I will disappear. 11. The master does not see me. He cannot see me. He cannot bear to see me, not as I yet am. He stands outside the nursery door, his hand pressed flat to painted wood, and tells me I am beautiful. He tells me that he loves me. He tells me that he'll save me. Who will bear the pole? We, said the wren, both the cock and the hen, we'll bear the pole. Leave everything to me. Twelve. I like her. The lady is comely. She smells of gardenias. I orbit her shins, and I wonder if she would like me too, could she see me. Would she allow me to sit on her lap and try on her jewels? Would she sing Who Killed Cock Robin with me? Or play hide-and-go-seek? I doubt it. Thirteen. I am alive. Without a body, she'll have no anchor. Living things die. I know. I am dying. Without an anchor, she'll disappear. I am disintegrating. I know. I am fading. There's only one choice. Help me! I know. Fourteen. Is a lady ready to begin her new life? Lashes low. The maid smiles at her master's intended. At her rouged cheeks. Her glossed lips. Her powdered décotéage. A veil is pinned into her ringlets. As fine as spun sugar or rhyme. Or cobwebs. Diamonds are stitched into its pleats, glittering like the dust to which we all return. Blushing with excitement, the lady beams. I am. Beside her lies the silk of a long train, its drag reminding me of shorn wings. Well, you look beautiful. Who will make the shroud? I, said the beetle, with my thread and needle, I'll make the shroud. The praise is enough to turn the lady's flush magenta. But when the maid opens her preternatural eyes, the one she is looking at is me. 
Fifteen. He enters when she leaves. Finery suits a man as regal as the master. He was born for gems and roses and satin. The top hat he wears is as black as his shadow, and I take an immediate shine to it. It is beautiful. He is beautiful. Not her, not me. I wonder if he knows that. Does he see? Though he is gazing into the vanity's mirror, his focus is over his shoulder, not on his own reflection. Fingertips settle upon the seat back. Cufflinks make prisms of the light. His expression is troubled, but his eyes are calm. I see them both, see through them both, to the soul that tarnishes behind them. I remember the day that he cried, the day he was told. But maybe, he is thinking of the day he believed. For when the master next speaks, he uses those same words he had with the maid. Who will dig his grave? I said the owl. With my pick and shovel, I'll dig his grave. Everything else, be damned. Sixteen. We await the bride and groom in the townhouse, away from the dangers of consecrated grounds. Being alone proves a different sort of blessing. With no lady or servants around. The maid can openly play with me, and play she does. I hardly notice the passing of time as it stretches across the floor, and forget my fretfulness completely during hide and go seek and rounds of song. Who will toll the bell? I said the bull. Because I can pull, I'll toll the bell. Throughout the city, the church bells sound. Seventeen. During supper, I sit in his lap. I try not to wriggle. I earnestly try. Wriggling makes me seem impatient, which adds to his guilt. My presumed distress makes it difficult for him to touch his meal. That isn't my intention. I only want his attention. Unimpressed by my behaviour, the maid glares as she fills crystal flutes with champagne. But her disapproval does not faze me. Privacy is a concept I put little stock in. I spiral contentedly atop his thighs. The lady is lovelier than ever in the smouldering candlelight, young and vibrant, skin supple and cheeks glowing. Her wedding had swollen her heart with joy, and that had swollen her bosom too. She lifts her glass toward her husband, and proposes a toast to our happiness, to the happiness of our families, and to the happiness of the family that we will have together. Her voice is husky, shy, enchanting. Alcohol bubbles in glasses and veins. He is nervous as well, but still smiles when he reiterates. To family. Eighteen. The bedchamber is dark. 
I can move as I please. Excited, I race on ahead, slipping between ankles and flying over floorboards. I roll atop the coverlet. I spin around the posters, fold into the curtains, bounce atop the mattress. I turn, and find the master and the lady have hesitated at the threshold. Behind them, the maid looms, her brow arched. Once upon a time not terribly long ago, outside parties were required to pay witness to a couple's first night together. She comments, her monotone painfully professional. Comparatively, this shouldn't be nearly as embarrassing and daunting. The master splutters. His flusterment visibly charms his new wife, who relaxes when he grumbles. You're not helping. The maid's expression betrays nothing. Does me lord need help to get the job done? No. The newlyweds enter the room, walking directly towards me. Nineteen. The ribbons in her hair hiss when unwoven, almost like flames being snuffed. Curls tumble around slender shoulders, their waves swept away by a hand. This gives her husband better access to the cords that crisscross down her back. He presses a dry kiss to her nape, his fingers tangling in the knots. Who will carry the coffin? I, said the kite. If it's not through the night, I'll carry the coffin. A dress and a petticoat fall to the floor. The lady steps out of them, as one would a fairy ring, her toes delicately pointed. Fanciful murmurings, vows and dreams, and pretty things that I can only catch parts of, slur together on the tip of her tongue because he is kissing her, kissing her fiercely, and she is losing oxygen and strength and her train of thought. They fall back on the eiderdown, twisting like I did. I watch them from the pillows, enthralled by all the ways that she is beautiful and pliant, and trapped between the master's thighs, gazing trustingly up at him as he pins her wrists to the blankets. He returns her smile, touches his mouth to her forehead, whispers, Now. Twenty. The lady does not realize something is wrong until she feels me in her trachea, lodged like a lump of undigested food. Instinctively, she chokes, keens, surely struggles against her husband. Hips jerking and eyes bulging, but his grip remains firm. He is unmoved. I do not move either. Not up, not out. I endure esophageal contractions, wait for painful spasms to subside. Then I tear my way purposefully down, skittering along ribbed muscles, as an insect would, or a parasite. I am not a parasite. I tumble into her belly with a splash of acid. For a moment, I sit in that puddle, dazed, trembling, listening to the rhythm of an unseen heart, to the undulating rumble of intestines. Blood rushes through tubes and capillaries. 
It is warm here. Pleasant. Familiar? The same. We are the same. The blood, the bile, the helixing bits. We are compatible. Family. My essence uncoils. Tentative. Feeling. I feel, and am felt, and am doing the feeling. I can breathe. I can breathe. Her lungs are mine. I want to clutch them, squeeze. No, no, wait. I need them. Be gentle. I pet them. They are porous and soft. Like the cushions in the parlour, she is soft all over, and still warm. Soft and warm. I like her very much. And so I fill her, slowly, with wisps and vines of self. I spiral downward to thread through ligaments. I loop upward to coat her bones. Every nerve and artery and lipid is prodded, catalogued, assimilated. I feel so happy. She feels so frightened. Oh dear. Her mind resists me. Her soul fights. But a doll has no need for minds or souls. 21. I am a covenant. I am their covenant. I am a vow that bound two into one, born from hatred and desire and corruption, and something depraved that twisted into something profound. I am the soul that a witch sold for power. I am the lives that a greedy count sacrificed. I am their spawn. Their sins personified. Their squandered chance to relearn humanity. To remember that love lets go. He does not let her go. I do not let her go. We love. We love. And we do not let go. 22. He is above me. He is speaking. He is above me, and is speaking, and I can feel him. I can hear him, as I never have before, from specified points of pressure and contact. His hands are no longer bound around her, around me, but I can feel where they'd been clutching. My wrists are sore, and my legs are tired. She must have thrashed more than I'd realised. He speaks again. Words. Language. I know words and language. As did she. She kept words and language in her brain. Her brain should tell me. Ah. I ate her brain. I put my knowledge in it instead. Where did I put that knowledge? 
I rifle and rummage as he speaks a third time. Maybe I can read his lips. No. I cannot see. Why can't I see? My eyes are closed. Oh. At once, I snap them open. There is little light, for it is still night, but the candle fire burns with a fierceness I did not expect. My pupils dilate, and the wet film between the balls and the lids replenish themselves as I blink once, twice, three times. Rin? His voice echoes out of his chest, unexpectedly deep. Soft. Humans are so soft. His face is soft, too, as if seen through hoar. Its details are blurry and underdefined. Only when I remember how to utilize my corneas do he and his worries come into focus. I realize he is saying my name. Rin? He sees me, though it takes concentrated effort. I pinch the corners of my lips. I lift them. They skim the flesh of his knuckle, tasting soap and sweat. And I am smiling. I am smiling. He can see me, and he cares. And I am smiling. The master's breath hitches. The gasp of it wedges in his throat, fluttering like a pulse. Like wings. Adurin? He repeats, fingers unfurling along the curve of my, my, face. Adurin, is that you? Response. Answer. Words, language, knowledge, yes, yes. Yes, I tell him. My own voice resounds in my ears, in my head, in the room. It is loud and reverberating. It is startling, but I am too elated to be alarmed. I want to make more noises. I want to move my tongue and my limbs. I want to touch. I want to do. I suck down another mouthful of air. It tastes of wax and smoke and makeup and hot skin. And move my arm, elbow, hand jerkily. Carefully, to cover his own. I say again, Yes, Father. 23. I receive many compliments. The master tells me I am beautiful. The maid tells me she is proud. She joins us some time later, and we three lay atop the bed. My heart beating so fast, I am afraid it will break through my breast. Ribcage shattered. Blood everywhere. Another ruined body. When I speak of these fears, my sires laugh. You were brave. You did well. They kiss each other, then kiss me. Different kisses. I like mine better. I like being better. I feel so much better. But though I am no longer sick, the master says I am. My poor cousin. He laments at a gathering, sighing into his wine glass as I nurse a cordial at his side. <laughs>
Her memories are gone, victim to a new wife's stress, I expect. Beside us, the maid feigns remorse. Violet eyes flash. The shock of the pronouncement comes and goes like a draught. The chill it had elicited, forgotten within moments. She is like a different person. The guests say in a hush, hiding behind gloves and ornate fans. Old friends marvel at the change, and family members gawk. They debate my transformation, as if I could not hear them, before ultimately deciding. Perhaps this is for the best. The lady was always a bit, well, how like a doll she is now, graceful, demure, and poised. Concerns are dismissed. The scandal breezes over. A murder of ravens screech outside. Who will sing a psalm? I, said the thrush, as she sat on a bush, I'll sing a psalm. She is not missed. 24. I always wanted to sing with her. Now, I can. I do. We chant nursery rhymes that harmonize with the church bells, our sweet voice fluting high, swooping low. Using the window as a mirror, I brush the blonde curls of my favorite doll, the brunette and the redhead watching on in jealousy. The cradle and its load have vanished. Time is stopped by my shadow. I am alive. Beyond frosted glass, a sparrow flits from a dead tree. 25. All the birds of the air fell a-sighing and a-sobbing when they heard the bell toll for poor Cock Robin. The best gothic horror leaves us unsettled to our core and distrusting of the fragile normality of everyday things, whether it be a household, a nursery, or a marriage. We wish you courage, dear listener, with facing what lies hidden behind the obvious. Thanks again to M. Regan for your contribution to this episode, and to Sheila Vegan, Abigail Burkett, Eric Little, Anna Potts, and Della Robertson-Glenn, for their performances. If you would like to get to know M. Regan beyond her amazing work, check out our interview with her that will go up on our website in just a couple weeks. Featured music was by David Hillowitz, Solar Flare, Kai Engel, and Jason Shaw. To learn more about our pieces, artists, and readers, visit our website, monstersoutofthecloset.com. Our next episode, Nightmare, will be released in late April. In the meantime, stay up to date with podcast news, submission calls, and our love for spooky memes at monstersoutofthecloset.tumblr.com and at pod underscore monsters on Twitter. If you're interested in participating in this show, we will be reopening submissions between April 1st and April 30th to fill our third season. 
We are also seeking new volunteer voice actors who can get started by visiting our website submit page. We recently adjusted our Patreon reward structure to help us continue to release content we can be proud of. To this end, our commentaries are replacing Phantom of the Cinema at the $4 level, and we're also introducing exclusive text and audio sneak peeks for upcoming episodes at the $2 level. With this new reward, it's a great time to consider becoming a patron if you haven't yet, so be sure to check it out. Lastly, thank you to our supporting producers Tara Rungan, Lindsay Holt, Sarah Lopez, and Lourdes Kaland, as well as all of our other patrons who make this show possible, and to you listeners who give this podcast a loving home. You are the undead children of our hearts. Until next time, Monsters out. Monsters out.